What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. But there's another name you might know me by. Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Guys, move! It didn't work for Chris Pratt. It's definitely not going to work for you either, Josh. All right, just call me Groot then. <laughs> that might work. Guardians of the Galaxy may have won this year's box office, but how will it fare as we count down our top 10 films of 2014? Josh, how will it fare? Uh, it's not going to be on mine, but okay. maybe someone else will we'll have see. it on their list. This week, it is part one of our top 10 countdown with special guests Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and The Dissolve's Scott Tobias. Musclebound Michael will be shirtless, of course, and Scott is a raccoon. Plus the winner of this year's Golden Brick Award. That and more. I am Groot. Ahead on film spotting. I can't stop this feeling. Deep inside of me. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Film Spotting listeners, including $10 a month donor George from Town & Country, Missouri, $5 a month donor Andy Friedman from Philadelphia, and Silver Club donor David Weiss from Mountain View, California. A buck a show donation from Stephen in Leeds, West Yorkshire, he says, a long overdue donation. Keep up the good work and sorry about the Lego, Legos argument earlier in the year. He did write in, Josh, okay. calling maybe just me out or maybe both of us for calling them Legos. Yeah, I can't remember Lego. what's correct. Lego is correct, I think right? Lego is correct, but, you know, humble kid growing up in the Midwest, we called them Legos. You only had one Lego, that's why. <laughs> I was dreaming about multiple Legos. Also want to thank Virginia Tulaney, listening from Austin, Texas. Thank you to all of our monthly donors. And also thank you to everyone who supports the show by rating us on iTunes. It is a great way to help us get more visibility and new listeners. listening to film spotting and ready or not it is time for us to share our top 10 films of 2014 part one anyway picks 10 through 6 and to help us do that our usual end of year roundtable guests we start with from the chicago tribune and his many regular film spotting appearances michael phillips michael hello. thank you for being here hello adam hello josh welcome michael we also have of course scott tobias from the dissolve scott i know you're playing a little bit hurt but thank uh, you for being here. Fever. It's the fever game. It's the Jordan fever game. Um, <laughs> totally comparable. Thanks for having me on. You're setting expectations awfully high now Yeah, for I your did. picks. It's really <laughs> nice, you guys, to devote 14 hours a year to this show coming in. I mean, it means it's a true, lot yeah. to us. It it's, could. Yeah. It could be a while it'll, basi it'll basically be like it usually is, but a little more nasally for me. <laughs> okay. okay. We'll and that. just that one five-minute bathroom break. Right. <laughs> That's what's all you need. Hour nine. <laughs> well, since it is going to be a long night, let's go ahead and jump right in, or We'll get there in a roundabout sort of way. As usual on these end-of-year shows, we've sprinkled in an assortment of special guest voicemailers. So it's not just our voices. We want to get some other voices in the mix. We've asked them to share their picks for the number one film of the year. 
Hello, Film Spotting. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com and co-host of the Fighting in the War Room podcast. And my number one movie of the year is Bennett Miller's Foxcatcher. I think this movie has gone through a lot of criticism of people saying that Steve Carell's performance is really stagey and the nose is fake and the metaphors are obvious. But I think what people miss is that the staginess of John DuPont, this man who Steve Carell plays at the center of this tragic story, is a stagey kind of guy. He's a guy who's self-creating himself. And this movie is about these American myths that we create around athletes, around rich people, around men. And it does such an amazing job of deconstructing all of them. Carell is really great. The intensity of the relationship between Mark Ruffalo and Channing Tatum is really great. And the movie operates on these three points of a triangle where it's this constant battle. And unlike some of the movies from the year like Whiplash or Fury, which are about manliness but really mistreat the women surrounding them, Foxcatcher knows what to do with its woman. It casts Vanessa Redgrave as this mother who lords over everything. I think maybe the American metaphors are a little big and bold, but then again, so is America. I think Foxcatcher has a lot to say. It says it really well. It says it really controlled, is beautiful, and is my number one movie of the year. Thanks for a great year, you guys. Thank you, Katie, for that pick. Foxcatcher, a film I know, Josh, we certainly had higher expectations for, wish that we loved as much as Katie did. She's making up for our dismissal of it. I'd she say really there. is. Yeah. Some great points there, I think, about the movie. But I was corresponding with Katie, and I want to throw this out to you guys. After she submitted her pick, she said, I almost spent half the voicemail saying, I loved all these female-centric movies like Wild and The Babadook and Two Days, One Night. But then I figured it was wiser not to apologize for embracing the macho. So <laughs> that actually really corresponded with something I wanted to bring up as I was looking through my list, I told Katie that that was actually a common theme running through my choices, this theme of men and masculinity in crisis. And so I'm curious, is there anything significant there? Was there something in the air this year with that theme? Or was there something else? Was there anything dominant theme-wise for you this year? I guess the better way to phrase it, guys, is, is there anything you need to apologize for off the bat? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in terms of my life, my God, uh, 14 hours won't cover it. You no. Know? But, uh, uh, you know, I like that theme, Adam. I like, I like the idea that it's uh, – when I, when I look at even just my f- top two, you have uh, two extraordinarily different pictures from each other, and yet they both kind of gravitate toward that theme of like what – you know what is what does it mean to be you know a, a, a quote good man or or you know grow into a good man or a good human being, um, and I that's uh, you know I, I think as we kind of slog through this 21st century that's that's a, that's a question that uh, is going to run at least all the lives of the four guys at this table. Mm-hmm. I wish I had like a theme. I mean, it's very hard to develop a theme out of such a wide variety of films that you know I see in a given year. And I'm looking at my list, and it's just it's it's just a motley collection of titles. I can't really make a head or tail of it, other than you know maybe it affirms my you know auteurist streak, you know, and then sprinkles a couple of uh, new names on there. But but as far as some sort of prevailing theme, I I'll have to pass on that. All right. So Scott apologizing for being an auteurist, but that's it. Josh, you? I think if you look at the lines Katie drew there. I probably have more of a feminine list than a masculine one. Good. But there is one title that's so macho, it balances the scales on its own. So, <laughs> Can't wait to get to that pick. Let's go ahead and jump right in then, guys. Michael Phillips, you start us off your number 10 film of 2014. Okay, it has not opened here yet. It's going to open at the Cisco sometime next year. Heaven knows what. Do you know? Do you guys know yeah, what the, the Safties. Did you see this in Toronto? I did. Yeah. So this is Josh and Benny Safdie uh, working together. And the, these are the folks that made Daddy Long Legs. 
This film was shot in New York, mostly uh, kind of on the down low uh, among street people and heroin addicts, and it's based on the unpublished writings of a now-recovering addict, Ariel Holmes, who plays a kind of a version of herself here. And this is one of these you know, non-fiction, fiction hybrids, I guess you'd call it, that take you right back to films like uh, On the Bowery from 1956 and Kent McKenzie's The Exiles, which took to the amazing look at kind of the street folk and, and just the, the Bunker Hill neighborhood of L.A. in 61. It's It's just... These are titles that may mean nothing to anybody <laughs> listening, but I just have to insist that you give this crazy, intense, immersive experience a shot. Heaven knows what. And I, I, I just think it's my favorite of the films that hasn't yet got a distributor, I don't think. Does. It does. It, it does. does. Oh, it does. It'll just come out next year. Oh, okay. Uh, I can't recall who the distributor is, but I mean, it, it played in New York, and I think it got enough attention to warrant a, a distribution. That's but. my number 10. I, and, there was a, that was a, here, and here's the thing. I saw it in a blur and the thick of a film festival, not much sleep. It turned out to be one of the films that w- worked beautifully on four hours of sleep yeah. because it is... I've never seen close-ups, at least for a long time anyway, close-ups this close that still retain some sense of of proportion or um, discernment, I guess, and how, how close the camera's really going to get to some very difficult action to watch even because you're dealing with a very uncomfortable proximity to some very harsh behavior and circumstances. And it's got the most extraordinary musical score I've heard in a long time. It's just got a lot of things going for it. See this film. If you haven't seen the Safties, you have to get to know them. Yeah, they're very, it's a very aggressive film. Yeah. Sounds fascinating, Michael. Heaven knows One, what. Unfortunately, we have not been able to catch up with yet, but coming to the Siskel, as you said, we'll keep our listeners posted on that with information on our website and throughout the coming year. Scott, you're number 10. Well, this is also um, not the most high-profile picture, but but I believe it is streaming currently. So, And that's the documentary, The Missing Picture. Oh, yeah. Um, this is by Rithi Pan. He did a film a few years ago called S21, The Kermer Rouge Killing Machine. And one of the issues that he has in sort of documenting this Cambodian genocide is that there's not a lot of footage. <laughs> and there's not a lot of evidence that he can really present in a, you know, as a documentarian would is with like archival footage or things like that. And his, his solution in S21 was to have actual guards and former guards and former you know, the people that they were tormenting uh, replay their roles. And it's remarkable how they lead normal lives now and they just fall right back into it. It's extremely eerie and disturbing. And, uh, and in this film, he deals with his own family's internment through the really extraordinary use of these figurines. Clay figurines, Clay, essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah, these very kind of crudely... Not not that crudely, actually. They're they're quite lo- lovely, but these clay figurines that he that he has in these little sets, and he reenacts them. And there's a kind of like a laying the device bare, where where they kind of you know the unreality of it is so, sort of revealed here and there. But um, it's an extremely inventive and compelling angle into the subject. One of my real regrets of the year, I think mainly because of that inventiveness, it made me think of a movie that we loved from last year, The Act of Killing, and also a documentary from a few years ago I saw at Sundance dealing with similar subject matter, Enemies of the People, which is very good as well. So that's one I need to catch up with in short order. Josh, what about you? You're number 10. This one I know listeners are familiar with because we've talked about it, Under the Skin. And when we did review it, listeners have heard me talk about my appreciation for this movie as an exploration of body image and its effect on human behavior. So I won't belabor that point any further here. Instead, I want to talk about how this film is, it may be the most complete movie of 2014. When you think of 
every element of the cinematic art coming together, working seamlessly in conjunction. You've got uh, the screenplay, which is my kind of screenplay. It's a, a narrative framework for the images, pretty much. That's all you're given here rather than this over-explained plot. You also have that imagery that's it's immediately gripping while somehow still being tantalizingly ambiguous. You're not quite sure what's going on, what you're seeing, but you know enough. You understand enough. I think about that early sequence of Johansson's alien taking on her new skin. Also, that inky pool that she leads the men into. We really never learn exactly how all of that works, but does it matter in the end? It didn't for me. I, I understood the fear and I understood the danger that was going on there. I've spoken about Mika Levy's thumping squiggly score great, and how that score. just great. works in conjunction with what else is going on. And then there is Johansson's performance. It's strategically blank, I would say, but also gets to some more layered moments as the movie goes on. And in choosing her, director Jonathan Glazer, he's further emphasizing this idea that under the skin is about the practice of judging someone based on their appearances, because really... In so much of Johansson's career, that's what filmmakers or casting directors have done with her, and uh, it hasn't always worked out for the best. Sometimes her performances have been flat in response to that sort of typecasting. Here, though, working in conjunction with the movie's theme, uh, it's really a career performance for her. Agree with you on everything you said about Under the Skin, and we'll link to this in our show notes if people are curious. One of the members of our Film Spotting Advisory Board, that group of listener volunteers that helps us out with ideas, Melissa Taminga has a really good theory about the beginning of Under the Skin, and that maybe I think the conventional wisdom about what's happening in terms of the the personality or the persona that mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson's character is taking on may be a little bit more complicated than it seems. I actually, okay. I really Sounds like good. it. I like to hear that. I like to hear that. So, yeah, we'll share that in that's the show a, that's notes. A great, that's a truly ambiguous picture in, in a way that frustrates the hell out of half the people who see it. But yes, I've heard a lot of frustration For the, for over the, the other movie. half of us, it just, I really, I'm eager to see that a second time. And that that's one of the best films that didn't quite make my top 10. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, yeah, it's going to be, it'll, we'll have to wait a while. I figured I was probably <laughs> stealing some thunder yeah, there Josh by putting getting, it at number 10. So. Getting under the skin out of the way here. As we get to my list here and my number 10, my list that I'm calling in reference to Katie, the embracing the macho memorial list huh. of picks for 2014. It did occur to me as we always bemoan how hard it is to form these lists, especially sometimes picking a number one film. Number 10 is really the worst pick, isn't it? Right? Because you sure. are, you're not just ranking them, you're leaving something off. You're leaving things off completely that you probably obviously felt really strongly about. But the movie I just couldn't shake and did have to finally make this list was Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler, Hmm. his feature debut starring Jake Gyllenhaal as a photojournalist. No, not even a photojournalist, just some kind of tabloid, sleazy kind of videographer. Right. Freelance crime videographer videographer at night in L.A. And just purely in terms of memorable, disturbing, tense and often hilarious scenes, that's what Nightcrawler is full of, and I just couldn't get rid of those. For example, it gave us one of my favorite scenes of the year, his date-slash-blackmailing of Rene Russo, (laughs) and the climactic scene I mentioned last week, Josh, on the show when we were doing our Best of the Rest, and I was talking about best action scenes in Mm non-action movies, the climax of this film, and there are many others, but there's one key moment that we didn't get to during our review that makes this movie special for me and really has had it linger in my mind. Lou is not a guy too worried about ethics and has done a lot of bad things throughout the film, 
up until this point that I'm going to mention. But there's one scene where he does really go too far, and he goes further after this, but it's pretty late in the film, so I don't want to spoil it too much. I'll just say he shoots footage of a scene that's pretty grisly, and you're shocked that he's actually shooting it. It doesn't matter what he sees or what's going on in the scene. He keeps shooting it like it doesn't have any effect on him whatsoever. He's just there to get the best footage possible. But then when he finally leaves... He gets a little bit down the road, and he pulls over his car, and he gets out, and he goes into the trunk, and he actually starts capturing and editing the footage and looking at what he's got. And while he's looking at it, Gyllenhaal is finally overwhelmed by it in the moment. There's this scene where it's kind of hard to describe what he does without seeing it, but he just takes this deep breath where it seems to be this moment where the horror of what he's looking at finally seems to register on his face. And I love that moment for three reasons. I love it because it shows us how having that camera in front of him can act kind of like a buffer. I think you can kind of turn off part of your your brain that maybe feels fear, maybe even feels compassion. You can do whatever you want. You're invincible. It's all not real. A movie like Waltz with Bashir deals with this theme directly. And it's only upon seeing the footage that he does finally have that shock and that recognition. I also love it because it's Gilroy and Gyllenhaal taking a moment to show us that maybe he isn't the pure monster that we think he is at this point. But the other thing I love about it is maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe he is a monster, <laughs> and it's not horror he's recoiling at at all, but pure exhilaration mm-hmm. in the moment. More likely, it's a combination of the two. And I love the fact that you have that kind of juxtaposition of, of emotions and feelings and how it can make you feel as a viewer in that moment. Well, it's Lou Bloom, the auteur there. He might have a spot Indeed. on your list, Scott. I don't know, because <laughs> he's admiring his own craft, maybe. Uh, maybe. I, I really liked Nightcrawler. That's the one review I've written this year that I wish I could kind of take back a little bit. It was a positive review, but I feel like I missed an aspect of the film that you know readers sort of pointed out to me later. I mean, I talked a little bit in the review about, I kind of approached it as a sort of a network media commentary to a degree, and I, and I talked a little bit in reference to... Uh, you know, the book, What Makes Sammy Run is a portrait of mm. kind of relentless, you know, American ambition. But mm-hmm. I, just, I feel like, but what I missed, I think, is that it's sort of a critique of the American can-do spirit. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the ethos he carries into mm-hmm. it. I mean, he's, he's just going to get the job done. He's going to be aggressive. He has this vision, this philosophy that's very American. And I kind of miss that in the review, and I kind of I regret it and kind of want to uh, revisit the film and maybe hmm. appreciate it a little bit more. Michael, your number nine movie. My number year. nine is uh, Dear White People. This is a film I have not seen a second time. And, and you know, I, I don't know if it's the same for you, you guys, but in the last few weeks, kind of leading up to the end of the year, you're, you're seeing many things a second time just to see where they fall on an end-of-the-year list and to see if a film you really liked held up better, worse, about the same as, you know, what, what new colors do you get out of it? What regrets do you have in terms of the review you wrote four months ago? Yeah, right. All that sort of thing. Dear White People's not, not a film I've revisited yet, but I, uh, I'll tell you, on the first shot, Justin Simeon's uh, re- really, really beautifully structured and I think very rich comedy, kind of a, sort of a satire, sort of a comedy about, you know, black life on a uh, an Ivy League campus and just a really kind of a, a racial incident that uh, sparks this whole whole kind of labyrinth of of uh, plot developments uh, r- really really stimulating and kind of one of the best american comedies i've seen this year and it's it's not the kind of funny we're used to seeing in on on a certain level of american independent filmmaking it's a really verbally adroit film and you can point to all sorts of obvious precedents for it, uh, spike lee's school days other spike lee films all kinds of stuff, but this—I I just think Simeon's Simeon's way with dialogue is something truly to be listened to and savored, and that that I didn't get enough this year in 2014. I got a lot of very good 
cleverly structured and often beautifully made films that happen to be comedies. This one, I think, really had a verbal sense of humor. The role of counterculture is to wake up the mainstream. I have furniture older than you. Counterculture? Is that what you think this is? Your little show? What about my show? The show is racist. Black people can't be racist. Prejudice, yes, but not racist. Racism describes a system of disadvantage based on race. Black people can't be racist since we don't stand to benefit from such a system. Your antics are making press, Sam. One of the Golden Brick nominees here on Film Spotting this year. Great choice. Scott, your number nine. My number nine is Force Majeure by uh, Ruben Ostland. This is a, uh, you know, I think you would call it maybe a Hanukkah-esque uh, film, though though I think a little less judgmental, a little funnier, uh, but also but just as pristine. There's um, less torture. Generally. Less torture, less torture, and it's a little more forgiving. Yeah. A little bit more, a little there's you know a little little warmth creeps in here and there, but it's about this quite literally picture perfect family. Uh, there's a picture <laughs> taken of them at the beginning of the film as they're at this ski resort in the Alps, and uh, there's this incident that happens, this controlled avalanche that takes place while they're having lunch. And it becomes not that controlled. <laughs> and the father has a reaction to it that is, shall we say, less than heroic. <laughs> and it's one of those things where the, in the aftermath, it comes up, you know, in kind of a, a jokingly passive aggressive way. And then it just kind of starts to metastasize and starts in this perfect, you know, sort of bourgeois family. They're gorgeous couple, gorgeous kids, no problems in the world. You know, we just see how brittle that relationship is. But I, but at the same time, you know, that's not where it ends. You know, that's not what I really admire. One of the many things I admire about the film is like, that's not where it ends. It's not just an exposure of whatever the bourgeois class. It's a lot more subtle about relationships and about marriage. And about, it's fiendishly clever. This is a wonderful, there's a couple of wonderful twists toward the end of the film that really uh, put it on another level for me. You might say, Scott, it's a movie that deals with masculinity in crisis. Oh. I'm to go back to my theme. <laughs> my favorite thing about Force Majeure, and you touched on it there when you talked about the family picture at the start, the entire film is almost structured as a series of family portraits. And frequently before that avalanche, you'll get group shots of them working, either peacefully going down the hill together. The family's always together like a group, right? Yeah. In the same frame. And then after that incident, they're always separate and working on their mm-hmm. own. And it just physically breaks that up and then you'll get some lovely moments of reuniting later on so yeah it's it's a really beautiful movie whenever I think of Force Majeure I think of Michael one of your recent appearances on the show we were talking off air and you asked me if I'd seen it yet and I had and you said it's a pip <laughs> and every time I think of Force Majeure I think of it being a pip and 15 minutes into the movie I'm like Michael's right this movie is a pip well, I, I don't know what it means. But I would have expected a pip to be a little brighter. I don't of a know. Film, I, though, I to just, be honest I, with you, I, nothing, my favorite psych gag of the year is that apparently uh, sustained shot of the, of the avalanche. That oh, hey, hey look, one of the aliens. <laughs> all the cameras come out, and then it gets a little too close, and then there's this, some murmurs of worry, like, uh, "Are you sure it's controlled?" Oh no, they know what they're doing, and then snow keeps coming. And it's yeah. all it's all this sustained shot, and for about a minute, it's just. Kind of an astonishing mixture of funny and potentially horrifying, and then you get the results, as you say, Scott. I, I just, I, I think that's just one of the craftiest first twenty minutes of any film I've seen. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little more about it later. We'll talk. <gasps> right. about it. Spoiler alert. Good. All right. For now, I'm at number nine, and that's where I have the Babadook, mm. a writer director Jennifer Kent. She was one of my discoveries of 2014 for this small budget horror film. I think it's a worthy entry in the parental nightmare subgenre of horror. We get a lot of movies like that. I particularly enjoy them. 
One of the inventive things that she does with this story is to keep us uneasy about the two main characters. There's Essie Davis's single mother and then Noah Wiseman's troubled little boy. They begin to experience these supernatural threats after reading this pop-up book called Mr. Babadook. Early on, you get the sense that maybe this is going to be a demon child movie because this kid's he's he's really trouble. He's somewhat creepy. He threatens other children. He terrorizes his mother. And you wonder, okay, are we going in this direction? But then Davis herself becomes something of a villainous figure after she suffers a mental breakdown and you swing over to the kid's side. You're you know, you're you're like, you gotta get away from your mother. You gotta protect yourself. I want to report someone stalking me and my child. Can you tell us what happened? Somebody sent me a children's book. <laughs> and? And it contained violent and graphic images of my child and me being murdered. Can we have a look at the book, please? I burnt it. You burnt it? Yes. Well, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about it. He's been making phone calls to me as well. What's he been saying? Nothing, just making these noises. How do you know it's the same person? Because of what he wrote in the book. The book you burnt? Yes. So the result of all of this is that the people who are the victims in this story are also at turns the threats. And it's just a whole other level of discomfort going on. It keeps us off balance right up to the end. Another brilliant thing about The Babadook is its ending, I think. It's wonderfully anticlimactic. And, you know, endings are a hard thing for horror films to stick. And this this one really lands it. I made a joke on Letterboxd that I would actually like to have a copy of Mr. Babadook, the pop-up <laughs> book. I, I, want, I want the first version, though, not the second one that the mother gets. And apparently that's now going to become possible. I saw oh, no. that. There has been so much interest that they're publishing a version. $80 a pop, mind you. Wow. But you can order it. Shipping out next year. No, thanks. <laughs> no? I don't want any part of it. I finally caught up with the Babadook, and I enjoyed it as well. And you know, I'll just admit it, speaking of masculinity and crisis, if my wife wasn't right next to me protecting me, no way I would have gotten through the movie. <laughs> Though it's not that terrifying overall. And I think actually as a real exploration of grief, the movie works very, certainly. very well. And that kid certainly, I think he's understandably disturbed and, and troubled and difficult, to put it mildly, but it certainly did make me really appreciate my brood. <laughs> so maybe it is good for parents to watch every now and again when you're feeling, you know, a little disillusioned a little overwhelmed. with your kids. You're like, well, I, yeah. like I don't have it so bad. I love the fact <laughs> that you could actually, if you actually just took out the most obvious 20, 25 minutes of horror, of suspense and fright and horror, what you have is kind of a, a sickly black comedy about a sleep-deprived single mm -hmm. parent who's just basically having trouble coping, you know? And, and it seems shot, completely legitimate. Scariest you know? shot in the film is the one where the mother's laying in the bed, just utterly exhausted, and, and the kid, she's in close-up, and the kid's in the background just constantly asking for more food. And you just see on her face, <laughs> yeah. you see on her face, like, the rage starting to build, right? Yeah. <laughs> My number nine film is a movie, I was hooked from the opening scene, and and it's an opening scene that you talked in detail about with the director of this movie. The director is John Michael McDonough, also the writer of that film. Michael, we discussed this movie on the show. It's Calvary. And the star is Brendan Gleeson. That opening scene I mentioned, he's a small village parish priest in 
Ireland, and he is told in this opening confession scene that he is going to be murdered by the guy confessing in seven days. And the camera just stays on Gleason, really one of our best actors going these days, just stays on him for the whole four minutes as he takes this in. And it opens with a really bracing line about a personal trauma that the confessor confesses. And when there's silence from Brendan Gleason, he says, nothing to say. And Gleason responds with, certainly is a startling opening line. (laughs) And it really is horrific what the person says. And yet he does make a little bit of a joke out of it. And I think that really is the crux of the movie, this sense of levity and this dark humor in the face of real kind of hopelessness and despair and some really grim subject matter. Andrew O'Hare writing at Salon described it well. I thought he said, McDonough walks a hazardous tightrope from scene to scene, from amiable comedy to black-hearted farce to heartbreaking tragedy, often trying to strike all those notes within seconds. It doesn't all work equally well, but the cumulative effect is powerful. And it definitely was powerful for me. I think the quip about opening lines, too, from Gleason, it speaks to, like McDonough's brother, Martin McDonough, the meta element to his work. As well, characters throughout this movie are constantly calling attention to themselves as players within a story. And I think that makes sense because they are kind of part of this larger narrative of Ireland and the church and the fallout from their scandals. I think that the other thing, Michael, we talked about when we discussed this show, the real interesting thing, more than anything, maybe not the mystery so much of who it is and who's going to carry this act out on the priest. The thing that really sustained me was the complexity of the feelings his flock has for him. Hmm. The way they feel they seem to feel a sense of reverence for him, and they they do have some respect for him while also hating his guts. (laughs) They really just feel, I think, the same way for him, the way they feel about the church and largely feel about themselves. It's also a movie that kind of goes back to my number 10 pick, Nightcrawler. The two times this year in a review, I talked about scenes really feeling like transactions. Every scene, there's something exchanged between characters where characters are kind of saying to each other, okay, I just gave you this or just admitted this. What do I get for that honesty? What am I going to get for what I just confessed and what price do I have to pay? And so that combination of, again, the humor and the drama, a little bit of an experiment almost, I think on McDonough's part, and he pulled it off really successfully for me. Not a word there. With Veronica, Jack. You're out of the house, were you? Is everything all right? Everything's fine. I mean, no, everything's not fine. Mass on Sunday? With the shades and everything? Oh, that. Yes, that. Alien into her, or what's going on? I wasn't me, no. No, no, that's that black fella that she's been seeing. I mean, the current fella she's been seeing. Sorry, I didn't mean to be racist there. That was a slip of the tongue. You're saying he beats her up? Don't quote me on it, but that's what I'm assuming. Yeah. She speaks in riddles half of the time. I can't make any sense out of her. I think she's bipolar or lactose intolerant, one of the two. That's Calvary, my number nine film of the year. And I think with that, Josh, we're going to take a quick break from the countdown. Yeah, we'll give you guys a little bit of a respite here. It's film spotting poll time when we come back, including our announcement of this year's Golden Brick winner, as chosen by you, the listener. You're sure you're okay with giving up this much control, Adam? How do you know I didn't just rig the results, Josh? There's a chance of that. (laughs) In keeping with our end-of-year tradition, we asked friend of the show Sam Smith to curate some of his favorite 2014 movie scores. We'll feature some of his choices in both parts one and two of the show. Up first, Grand Budapest Hotel. But before that, a voicemail from Sam, a designer who has done the art for several Criterion Collection DVD editions. Here are his picks for the best movie posters of the year. Stay with us. Hey guys, it's Sam Smith, listener, designer, and host of the new podcast, The Poster Boys. I wanted to let you know my favorite movie poster designs of the year. Uh, It's pretty much a tie between Neil Keller House's poster for Under the Skin 
and the poster designed by Annie Atkins for the Grand Budapest Hotel. She designed the title treatment you see there, um, the poster itself, and literally all the props in the movie. So pretty impressive work from her. And uh, some other favorites, the one I love by Kiko Sternberger, Brandon Schaefer's poster for Borgman, and Keller House again for Gone Girl. Thanks, guys, and Happy New Year. Josh, this is Ryan Johnson calling in. Um, I want to really quickly get in my number one movie for the year, uh, which is Under the Skin, uh, which I think is just an absolute masterpiece and is one of my favorite movies of the past decade, let alone this year. Um, But I'm really also calling in to uh, announce the winner of the Golden Brick. Hold your horses there, Ryan. Not just yet. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Also joining us this week for our Best of 2014 countdown, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and the Dissolve Scott Tobias. We'll get back to our picks of the year's best in a bit. But first, we do want to talk a little bit about Ryan Johnson. It's been a big year for Ryan. I think the biggest thing, of course, was his appearance on our 500th episode. By far. By far. Just, just and, and distancing. physically the biggest. Yes, it Huge, was on that 40, big screen foot <laughs> at the music box. I guess he did also have that big moment when it was announced that he'd be writing and directing the second of the J.J. Abrams produced Star Wars sequels. That would be Episode Eight. Do. I don't know, 2017-ish? Sounds right. And I, I think it was his film spotting appearance that landed him that gig. I'm sure. <laughs> that sealed the deal. <laughs> okay. Might have been a week after it, but I like that theory. It, it right proved now. he could handle exposition uh, gracefully. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we really need anything else to get us excited about Ryan's take on Star Wars, but just for a second, objectively speaking, how great is it that the director of one of the next Star Wars movies names as his favorite film, not just of this year, but he actually says, of the last decade, Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. <laughs> Apparently, I severely underrated it at slot number 10 there, <laughs> yeah, huh? Indeed. Oh <laughs> severely underrated. So we'll oh. get back to Ryan, and we'll get to the Golden Bricks in a moment. Right now, just a little bit of yay us time, if you'll indulge us for a second. Just this past Sunday, Slate announced its top 25 podcast episodes of all time. And I know a lot of our listeners saw this on Facebook and have seen some notes about it on Twitter. The feedback has really been wonderful. Thank you for all the emails. And It's not just the top 25 podcasts. They are picking actually podcast episodes, which I don't really know what's more remarkable. The fact that the folks at Slate undertook that effort to cull through (laughs) all of those and and really pick which episodes made the cut or the fact that Film Spotting made the cut. They actually named our two-part Film Spotting number 300 episode among their top 25. We clocked in at number 15. That was recorded back in May 2010 with then-host Maddie Robinson, Sam Van Halgren, our producer now and original Film Spotting co-host, was also on that episode, and Scott Tobias, Michael Phillips, special guest. I think that's what pushed us over the hump. <laughs> Putting it over the top. Your voicemails there. That was celebrating five years. Of course, now we're celebrating 10 years and 500 episodes of the show. So looking back on it real quick, I think we did want to acknowledge that what makes that episode special 
because it definitely isn't hearing me talk about Mulholland Drive for the 27th time, <laughs> is just how big a part of the show Film Spotting listeners are. There's a ton of voicemails and feedback and really just a reminder of what it is after almost 10 years that's made this show so much fun to do. And it is every one of you out there listening. So thank you for that. And we do want to say thanks to Slate for the honor. Josh, I am trying to get Sam to digitally insert you somehow into the show just so the whole gang will be there. Yeah, but that would make me like Jabba the Hutt yeah. when George uh-huh. Lucas messed with the original Star Wars and he's sliming out to the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, but I don't I don't want that. You love No, that. I don't like I don't like the remastered whatever you call them. So Okay. Well, Thanks, congratulations. Scott. Thank you, you Scott. That's great news. I, I took it took 299 episodes of trial and error, but you finally <laughs> you finally yes. got there with episode 300. Indeed. <laughs> well, I, I also want to say thank you to you guys not only for appearing on that episode, but for dressing up for this recording. Because I don't know if our invitation made note of the fact that this taping is doubling as our fifth annual Golden Brick Awards ceremony and gala. You guys look <laughs> splendid. I'm always I'm always dressed. Michael right. entails. Sure. Which is, Unlike is great. the Golden Globes, though, we don't serve champagne. It's just hard cider. Is that okay? Do you guys like that <laughs> yeah. stuff? Good. Well, one of our wonderful producers, Golden Joe Dassault, I can see him through the glass. And I believe we still have that Golden Brick theme song from last year's live show. Maybe we can cue that up. It's the Golden Brick Award. Put on your helmet and your sword. Bow down to the Lord. The genius there of Abraham Levitan. Maybe my biggest regret about us not doing a rap party this year is not having Abraham's oh, for sure. involvement. But it makes me think we did our best of the rest show, which was kind of a yes. bastardized version of yeah. the rap party. We stole some categories. Why didn't we have Abraham just sit in the corner of the studio with You're the two of late. us? You're a little late. You're a little late, Josh. I know. Regrets. <laughs> but appropriate that that's our Golden Brick theme song, which was Improvise on the Spot, which is more or less what we've been doing with the Golden Brick criteria for the last five years on the show. And that brings us back to Ryan Johnson. I reached out to Ryan and asked him, if he could somehow find the time, you know, just slink away from making a Star Wars movie to announce the winner of this year's Golden Brick Award, because hopefully listeners are aware that the Brick is named for his 2006 debut movie, Brick, a film that really knocked us out at the time and one we were able to turn a lot of listeners onto. And I think that really does sum up perfectly the Golden Brick criteria. Debut film, smart surprising, inventive movie, and a lot of listeners probably wouldn't have seen it if we didn't bring it to their attention. So before we let Ryan finally announce this year's winner, Josh, let's hear the nominees one last time. We had six of them. We had Blue Ruin from director Jeremy Saulnier. Calvary, already mentioned on Adam's list. That's written, directed by John Michael McDonough. Dear White People, a couple of these are getting some attention already. Michael's pick there. Written and directed by Justin Simeon. Mistaken for Strangers is another option. That was the documentary about the rock band The National, directed by first-time filmmaker Tom Berninger, who's the brother of The National's lead singer Matt Berninger. The One I Love was another option, the debut from director Charlie McDowell. And finally here, Startup, the British prison drama from director David McKenzie. So we'll hear Michael and Scott, and get your pick if you had a vote in the Golden Brick Award. But you didn't because we left it up to the (laughs) listeners, and we are going to finally make way for Ryan Johnson and the announcement of this year's Golden Brick winner. The winner this year uh, is a movie that I really loved so much. The winner is Blue Ruin by Jeremy Saulnier. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Jeremy. Um, And it's a 
stunning, amazing little gothic noir um, that is tight and it's beautiful and the visual storytelling in it is just tight as a drum. It really reminded me of um, Blood Simple. Uh, and it has a fantastic performance by Macon Blair in the lead. Call them. Zim Tops. Your family. What do you want me to say? We're all gonna... We're all gonna meet up. Somewhere public. And this is gonna end. Okay. Don't say my name. And don't mention the gun. And we're in Kentucky. Um, just a terrific movie. I'm so happy that it got voted. Um the winner of the Golden Brick. I hope you guys had a terrific year. Thanks for all the uh, great shows, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Ryan. That really couldn't have worked out better. Not only did he share that voicemail and announce the winner for us, but it turns out he loved the movie. So congratulations to Jeremy, who we now have competing versions of how to pronounce his name. I believe, I looked this up, it's Jeremy Sunier. Oh, wow. So we've all been wrong. I was going to say, time. that's the third version. Yeah, third version. Great. We're going to go with that one. What happened to the yell? Is it Sunye Previn? Just, or is it, is it, it is not. It's not Sunye Previn? No, okay. no, no. Just Jeremy Sunye, which is really fun to say. Actually, I, I recommend you all do it. And let's get to the poll results because we did, Josh. Leave it up to the listeners this year. And we think they made a very good choice with 35% of the vote. Blue Ruin was the winner. Calvary was in second with 26%. Startup third, 15%. The One I Love with 10%. Mistaken for Strangers, just 7%. And alas, Michael, dear white people, in last place with only 6%, probably due largely to the fact that it's the hardest one to see. It's only been playing in theaters for a few weeks, and the rest have all been out for a while and available on DVD or on demand and various platforms. So probably a reason there against your white people. But we appreciate all the votes we got, and we appreciate all the feedback we got as well. Let's hear some of that feedback from listeners who weighed in on the poll. That includes Josh Oakley. He said, Mistaken for Strangers is not just the winner of this poll for me. It's my third favorite of the year, After Boyhood and Love is Strange. My favorite aspect of the film is that the very fact it was created is inspiring in and of itself. The entire doc is a journey for director Tom Berninger, learning to believe that he, and anyone really, deserves to be the lead in their own story. That we see him editing the film really brings him home. Though formally different, this reminds me a lot of last year's Stories We Tell, where the film is about storytelling and the way we shape our stories and the stories around us. A powerful look at brotherhood, self-confidence, and, in a post credit scene that blows anything Marvel has done out of the water, the innate power of rock and roll. Mm, well said. Luke Schultes wrote in and said, My finger hovered over Calvary for a split second, but since I found a lot of positive reviews on it aside from that of film spotting, chances were that I would have seen it anyway. My vote goes to mistaken... For strangers, there was so much about this movie that I loved, but it deserves the golden brick because I think it's the most film-spottingest movie on the list. (laughs) Movies about movie-making, meta-elements. Two men who really care about each other deep down but argue over silly things. (laughs) (laughs) And because it comes with the extra nugget that it may also turn you on to The National. Okay, so a lot of love for that documentary. They are not silly things, though, Luke. They're very important things. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, this comes from Dom from Australia. Calvary wins it for me. I love The Guard. Funny, sad, thrilling, intriguing, and expecting something similar from McDonough with another Brendan Gleeson starring Irish flick featuring comedic actors Chris O'Dowd and Dylan Moran. But any comedy here is as black as it gets. And instead, we get a film that takes a hard look at some big themes. The circle of violence, forgiveness, the flaws of the Catholic Church, while remaining entertaining throughout. Plus an ending that you just wouldn't get from Hollywood. 
You just know whatever comes next from McDonough and Gleason will be worth seeing. I second that. Sean Cook says, My vote perhaps shouldn't count as much as some others as I haven't seen all of the movies on this list, but for me, the one I love is The Winner. It was such a playful but cerebral film about love that despite its few shortcomings, I still can't stop thinking about, and that's truly what I want from a film. I want a journey that puts me into someone's life and mine while also making me ask important questions about myself and the relationships in my life. Not since Eternal Sunshine has a film combined magical realism and deep questions questions about love in such a complex and interesting way. One more quick one here from Joshua Heiser. I don't see how it could be anything but start up. All great nominees, but the performances in this film outshine anything else from the year. Fantastic film. Yeah, and Jack O'Connell, we were big on his performance. Happy to see that the Chicago Film Critics Association, which were a part of, wisely voted him as the best newcomer, most promising performer of the year for that performance. So thank you to everyone who voted again and who shared some of your feedback. That brings us to this week's poll question. Simply, we're sharing our top 10 films of 2014. We want to know what you think the best film of 2014 is. And we could feature several high-profile films that won't go into wide release until closer to the new year or later in the case of P.T. Anderson's Inherent Vice not opening here in Chicago until January 9th, but those are not represented on the poll. We will be giving you another option. We encourage you to share your favorite film along with a pithy defense. has to be a pithy defense of your pick in the poll comments. So you can vote now at filmspotting.net. And as always, if you leave us a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. I don't want to deprive our listeners, though, guys. I said that you guys were going to have to weigh in on the Golden Brick vote. If you had it, which way would you have gone, Scott? Uh, I would have gone the way the listeners. I'm going to pander. You guys are, you guys are <laughs> great. Blue Ruin. <laughs> you guys know exactly what you're doing. Uh, Blue Ruin, which I absolutely love. It's, it's, it's so much fun. It's, it is, uh, uh, does evoke the, the Coen brothers. That, I mean, it's about a guy who is committing revenge, but he's an ordinary guy. He doesn't know how to do it. This is not, does not come easily to him, and it, it leads to a lot of very tense and very funny situations, and uh, I thought it was a terrific little thriller. Okay. Scott, going with the herd, Michael, you I would not? I would have to assert my my previously stated affection for dear white people. You okay. Know? No, I really do. I think it's, it's a film that not much distribution. It's getting out here and there on various platforms, but I think... Uh, I think the more people discover it, the more people will actually find that it's worth discovering. Dear white people, on your list, Michael, we'll see if any of the other Golden Brick nominees make it to our list of our favorite films of 2014. We're going to jump back into those top 10 lists in just a moment. And in the break, another one of Sam Smith's favorite 2014 scores from Michelle Gondry's Mood Indigo. Stay with us. Matt Singer from Film Spotting SVU, calling with my best film of 2014. And this year, I'm going with the obvious choice, but I think it's obvious for a reason. 
and that is Richard Linklater's Boyhood. And I'm sort of taking the short-term view and the long-term view here. Short-term, I was a film I saw several times, and I loved more. The second time I saw it, the film just adored and thought was brilliant. And then in the long-term, I just think this is a movie that uh, it's going to stick around. People are going to be talking about this movie in 12 years when the next uh, Boyhood iteration perhaps comes out or uh, the next thing like Boyhood comes out or in a hundred years. It just seems like something that uh, is such an achievement. It's so creative and brilliant and beautiful and interesting that uh, it's one, it's one I want to get behind early. And uh, if people haven't seen it, they really, really should. Uh, Thanks very much. Have a great holiday season and uh, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You're listening to Film Spotting. Getting us back to our top 10 films of 2014 countdown is Film Spotting SVU host and, of course, from Screen Crush, formerly of The Dissolve, Matt Singer. I don't know, if, Scott, if you harbor any ill will towards Matt Singer for abandoning you. I'm just uh, hitting you with it. Really? That's stuff for another like hour-long extra podcast. <laughs> no, Drama. No, no ill will no, at all. Uh, Matt really did a lot to establish the voice of the Dissolve. He was an in- incredibly hard worker, and we, we love him and miss him uh, dearly. Okay. Uh, personally, it strikes me as kind of a weasel. No? <laughs> that, you know, I mean, I say all true. that not with true. my teeth gritted, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Michael Phillips, for the record, has said many a nice thing about Matt Singer on this show and off of this show. So no, no, he's really, he's left his weasel days behind. He has, and and certainly a very astute pick there for his number one film of the year, Richard Linklater's Boyhood. We're going to quickly recap our ten through nine picks before getting back to the countdown. Michael, yours were uh, number ten, Heaven Knows What, and number nine, Dear White People. Number 10, The Missing Picture, and number 9, Force Majeure. My number 10 was Under the Skin. My number 9 was The Babadook. I had at number 10, Nightcrawler, and Calvary at number 9. So that does bring us to number 8, Michael. Number 8, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. I think the theme for me, one of the themes this year, now that we're actually talking about theme, and and, and I'm I'm with Scott on this. It's, It's a ridiculous task to look at 250 movies and you know, get get the, the handy one-sentence theme out of it. But I did see an awful lot of movies the last few months about ego and the artistic drive and kind of the perils of both and and just really kind of what it takes to devote your life to an artistic pursuit. And it's so easy to be kind of, you know, falsely noble about it. It's so easy to be kind of reductively melodramatic about it, everything. Mike Lee wants none of that. I love Mr. Turner because it it taught me a little bit about, not in a documentary way, but it taught me a little bit about J.M.W. Turner's life and his art and a little bit about his personal life. But Lee doesn't care at all about larding any biopic with the usual biopic nonsense. I mean, why? it's the same reason I loved... Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy, the Gilbert and Sullivan film. This just has a slightly bigger budget, just enough to really immerse you in the settings and the life of this man, beautifully played by Timothy Spall. I've seen it twice. It, it, it held up beautifully a second time, and I, I really look forward to uh, writing about it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's uh, Mr. Turner, top ten. Yeah, I mean, immerse is definitely the right word for that movie. That's the difference with him with both Topsy Turvy and this. It's not only his resistance to the usual historical biopic cliches, but just the fact that his whole process is so 
relentlessly detail oriented that it's it really sort of transports you back to this time. And of you place. know what I love about it too? I, there's not one line of dialogue in that film where where you have to suffer through Turner as played by Spall announcing or pronouncing what sort of art or artist he believes Never. in or is compelled by none of that. It's yeah. much more, cons- you know, it's much more kind of quotidian, everyday, realistic sort of things about like, oh my God, the price of paint is going up. And, you know, just like very kind of workaday stuff. And yet a lot of it's really witty and all of it seems truthful to me. So, yeah, no, mm. I love it. Scott, you're number eight. My number eight is Listen Up, Philip by uh, writer-director Alex Ross Perry. This film is just so nasty and caustic, and it identifies in a very unsparing and very specific way this sort of East Coast man of letters, you know, and you've seen this character. Artistic and, ego, man. That's, seen, right, exactly. you, it's the all, theme of the it's year. It's all coming together, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the type of person you've seen in, in, uh, in a Woody Allen movies. You've seen him in, you know, Noah Baumbach is probably a good point of comparison. But this film is just so much harsher than those movies. But at the same time, it's pretty well-rounded, too. You know, it's got all these jagged edges, but then, you know, there's these characters played by Jonathan Price, who's sort of this uh, Philip Roth t- type, and the film kind of comes back to her and spends some time with her and deals with, like, you know, the wreckage that he sort of left in her life. And it's just, the film is just, it's messy in a very artful, deliberate way. It's like, it's not smooth around the edges, and I, I really appreciate that. Okay, could you stop doing that? It's really annoying. <laughs> I planned on going away for a week. You know this is important to me. I know, but it wasn't supposed to start for 10 days. They changed it. I don't know what to tell you. You're not being really supportive right now. You know this is an amazing opportunity for me. Tell me the good version of this conversation. You got the job? Congratulations, Ashley. I'm so happy for you. Although I admit to being a little disappointed, I understand that these things happen. I'm so proud of you, baby. That's basically what I said. I would never say that. Listen Up, Philip has my favorite female performance of the year, Elizabeth Moss's. Yeah, yeah she's yeah, just And my just favorite fantastic. single moment of acting in a year. Exactly. Yep. I, you'll, I think you'll we're thinking of the same, same scene, for sure. sure. My number eight was my biggest surprise of the movie year, and it's Maleficent. I was not prepared for how taken aback I was going to be at the, oh, I was not prepared potent. for that pick actually <laughs> none of us were we are no. also taken aback I, I went into I went into this thing you know with the family thinking sure we'll check it out Jolie looks interesting in the trailer and this is really potent it's a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story this time from the point of view of the evil fairy Maleficent played by Jolie of course Jolie she's the reason this thing sings I mean she gives the lying readings and the costuming the seriousness that they deserve without falling into camp. And you need a star to be able to do that. Someone who has star power. And she pulls that off. Now, first time director here, Robert Stromberg, and he's been blamed for relying on too much CGI imagery. There is a lot of it here. I'll admit that. But he also manages some fantastic fairy tale images. One of my favorite shots of the year involves Maleficent's wings and employs mostly practical effects. I I don't want to get into it because it's will give some plot things away. The screenplay is by Linda Wolverton, and I think it's actually quite subversive in what it does with the accepted notions of gender and power in our princess stories. So this this isn't just a revisionist tale that's one of these silly fractured fairy tales. There, there's something more intentional going on here than a good time. And in fact, you know, in how it details what happens to Maleficent that turns her towards this other path and how it traces the ensuing psychological drama, I think the movie is a fairly blatant allegory for surviving sexual assault. And that's something that, you know, this came out in the first quarter, I believe, of the year, maybe the first half. It's only gained more resonance for me because what's one of the big stories that's developed this year? Campus rape. That's what a lot of the discussion has been in 2014. And this movie speaks to that, I think. Hmm. 
All that being said, I don't want to scare people away because <laughs> it still works on the level of a family movie. It really does. Uh, my daughter was Maleficent for Halloween, so it has that working for it as well, that kids will be able to tap into it. And I think, you know, like all good popular art, it has that, but there's something else going on underneath, at least there was for it's me. Got, wouldn't you say it's got a heavy-duty crossover with the audience appeal with Wicked, the stage show Wicked, you know, which is the... the I think they're trying to do different things in refashioning these familiar figures. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it does in that sense. Well, Josh, I'm not mad at you for the pick. I am mad at you that you ruined our string of Michael's theme of ego and artistic drive because it could have been four in a row. Okay. But you blew it. I'm going to try to cap it off, though, Michael, with my number eight pick, and it is Whiplash, the movie starring Miles Teller as an aspiring jazz drummer at a very prestigious conservatory being pushed by J.K. Simmons. And it's interesting that you have Mr. Turner that started this conversation off because it's a really good point of comparison, I think, in the sense that this is a movie, Whiplash, where you have a character constantly talking about what he wants to be and viewing himself as his future great artist as a jazz drummer. And of course, he's much younger than Turner is. When we come to Mr. Turner, we see him later in his life and maybe the last 25 or 30 years, but he's a fully realized artist and he doesn't spend time thinking about what kind of artist he's going to be. He simply is. He simply lives it. And the Miles Teller character here isn't quite ready to live it yet. He's also, not really... Also, Turner was a fabulous jazz drummer. I'm sure well. he was. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he was. But yeah, yeah Andrew Neiman... A pioneer, here. really. <laughs> I mean, because he was doing it 100 years. 100 years yeah, before yeah, it even yeah. existed. So how about that? Yeah. Andrew, though, just really isn't, isn't comfortable enough yet uh, in his skin, at least as an artist. And he, he really is uh, sort of being abused and being pushed, maybe in a good direction, depending how you kind of read the end of the film, by uh, his instructor, Fletcher. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Oh, Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! In terms of just sheer intensity and unnerving pleasure, though, this movie is up there with anything I saw this year, particularly as we get to the climax of the film. And there's another theme for me this year with some of my other picks, my previous two films and also some future choices, this idea of playing a role. And it's not so much with the Andrew character, but with Fletcher and one scene in particular that I really like in this movie. And it's the one where he's been just this incredibly hard driving instructor, just ruthless and vicious. And then he gets some bad news about a former pupil and he can't teach the class and he sits down and he actually becomes emotional. He, he kind of sheds a tear or as close as Fletcher is going to come. He seems to act like a human with real emotions and he relates the story of this pupil and how he did some transcendent work as a jazz musician and how sad it is that he's not going to be able to do that anymore. And the scene works as an emotional scene. You believe Fletcher in the moment, I think, that he genuinely feels that way about this loss, while also, I think, believing that he may have done it entirely to manipulate his players, right, <laughs> to get them on his side. After all the beatdowns he's given them, he gives them this moment of genuine emotion to make them think, that he really cares about them and will continue to care about them after they've left this school. And you know what? Even if he is, even if it is a little bit of acting there on his part, if it's a little bit fake, I don't know that it actually makes it phony or less true. I think if it gets the desired result, then maybe it's all worth it. And Josh, one of the things that when we reviewed this movie, I mentioned in bonus content, maybe we'd get to kind of how I saw this movie in jazz relating to this concept of, of art and seeking perfection and how I thought it, it just fit perfectly with that. And we never made time for it. 
perfection, I think, in art is one of those things that's just not attainable. And I do hate it when film critics and others throw around phrases like it's not perfect because, of course, it was never going to be perfect. And I don't think we need to hold it up to that. But jazz is an art where, you know, there's a precision to it that's different than with other popular musics, I think, or other popular forms of art in general. Like you, you wouldn't sit there with a, a painter or a sculptor and, and analyze every single technique they have. But with a drummer in particular, or with a jazz musician, there are certain things that you simply can't do or you can't do. Just there's, there's that bar of entry to get into the game. Mm. And if you, if you can't do those things, if you can't do some of those definable techniques, play double time swing at a certain rate, you're never going to eventually get to that level of a jazz musician that you want to get to. So you can play a song a hundred times, a thousand times, and maybe feel like there's a perfect version of it still out there if, if somehow you, you just demand enough of yourself. And I think that's what this movie ultimately really gets at. I also love the performances, of course, J.K. Simmons as Fletcher and Miles Teller. And one of the great twists of the film along those lines is that when they achieve their moment of perfection in that climax, it's a holy mess, right? Or at least it comes out of a holy mess. So yeah, it, it, it does have a lot of fun with that idea of perfection mm. and what it looks like. That brings us to our number seven films of 2014. Michael Phillips, I turn to you. Force Majeure. I use my number seven. Force Majeure, we've already talked about it here, but it's... Uh, Black comedy, I think, is a is it's all a matter of tone and getting everybody to play in the same universe and not tip your hand about what you know where where things are going uh, in any way. I might, the one thing I'd kind of argue with you on Scott is mm. I, what I get from that from the image of this family that is on vacation in the Alps is not so much a picture perfect bourgeois model of upper middle class kind of perfection so mm-hmm. much, but it's just. Right away, things seem a little, you know, they're all kind of in their own electronic orbits all the time. You know, the 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 father we hear is a workaholic who's basically, you know, the the wife keeps saying, well, you know, he he needs to spend more time with the family. We're we're all here to spend time together, and it, it, you know, he's doing it sort of semi reluctantly. You sort of get the feeling, and it's all just there's little hints, I think, at at the behavior you see that comes out of the key avalanche sequence. And the funny thing about force majeure is when you just hear that there's something to do with a family and an avalanche and what happens next, everyone, for months, everybody kind of assumed, oh, force majeure, is that, it's, it's an Irwin Allen film. It's a disaster <laughs> movie. You know? And it, in fact, no, it's much closer to, as you say, Michael Hanukkah or, um, I don't know, I just, I, I love it. And the guy gave a great, the director gave a wonderful interview in the Times where he just said, look, if my film can cause at least one divorce, I'll be a happy man. (laughs) Because it's all about sort of, you know, like how you perform in a crisis, how you as a merit, as one half of a marital couple perform under extreme duress and at your lowest moment does in fact sort of point to your future, whatever that's going to be. <laughs> and uh, that's why I love this movie. When you're talking about the family being in their own electronic orbits too, there's a delicacy how to, because that's a trope, right? Uh, the dad's on his phone too much, but there's a delicacy to how force majeure handles that. Why'd the you early, look at me when you said that? <laughs> the, the, off your phone, Adam, I'm mm-hmm. talking. The early scene where she, they're all laying on the bed, another one of these family compositions, right? They're all on the same bed napping and his phone's buzzing and he says, I'm not going to get that. Second later, the wife gets up, goes into the bathroom. And so he grabs it right away. Right. But how they undercut that is she comes out, sees him and laughs and they laugh about it together. And I think it's just a tiny example of how this movie, you never know 
exactly where you stand with the family, where they stand with each other, because it's not laid out there, bad dad. Right, right. right? right. Yes, and it's not just a cheap joke. Right. The movie itself, I suppose, is a cheap joke, but it's a, it's the highest, most sophisticated sort of cheap <laughs> joke about masculine behavior. Let's say it, Adam. It's mm. the damn theme for the year. It is. Let's assert it. <laughs> At least for my top ten. I don't know about the year. What about your number seven, Scott? Any cheap jokes in there? Mm, is it about masculinity in some way? Kind of. It's The Immigrant by James Gray. Um, this is Adam's a film. favorite film. Yeah. <laughs> a film that got not ab- in my top ten. This is a film that got horribly abused by uh, the company that is distributing it. <laughs> it was a it, it uh, opened to terrific reviews, uh, including from the Dissolve, and it won some awards uh, recently. And yet, it doesn't even appear on their awards page. You know, I feel terrible for the fate of this movie because I feel like. It's the one movie this year that sort of embodies the the phrase, they don't make them like they used to. I mean, this is such a (laughs) throwback movie. This is set in Ellis Island, 1921. It's got a very stately quality to it. It's about a Polish woman who who comes over with her sister. Her sister is quarantined with a lung illness, and uh, she's bound for the next ship out. She's played by Marion Cotillard. Joaquin Phoenix plays a guy who's preys on on women just like this. Sort of, you know, he's a manager with, at a uh, at a burlesque, and sort of brings her along. But the thing that's so one of the things that's so remarkable about this movie and about this dynamic between these two characters is that she is in this incredibly compromised position. She has absolutely no power, but she just insists on her dignity and maintaining her dignity and not uh, crossing these lines that that he is pushing her to cross. And it really challenges him and leads him into these sort of fits of self-loathing. And, um, you know, I think those two performances are are, are remarkable. I think Darius Kanji's photography, I think think, uh, James Gray's choice of locations on a limited budget. Uh, it just the whole project is, is has a richness to it. It's almost a novelistic quality. Yeah, I really love it. Who's that? My sister, my mother, and my father. Beautiful. Her name is Magda. Where are your parents now? They're dead. Do you mind asking what happened? They were killed by soldiers. myself on you you are a stranger to me and you come into my home I feed you I take care of you and you steal from us well I don't have the immigrant on my list that's another one Adam and I both severely dismissed earlier in the year but I do have a reference to it later in my list it might not be until part two though so I'll get to that (laughs) my number seven film is only lovers left alive and I think this has been somewhat forgotten in the year-end rush I haven't seen it on a lot of top 10 lists uh, but months after I did see the film it still stands I think it stands as one of Jim Jarmusch's best films which is high praise for me Now, I didn't see The Fault in Our Stars earlier this year, but I can't imagine a more romantic movie couple from 2014 than Adam and Eve. This is the vampire lovers who have spent centuries watching humanity from the shadows. Uh, Probably helps that they're played by Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton in the film to perfection. They just, they ooze longing. Josh, I have to say, I would love to see Jim Jarmusch's version of The Fault in Our Stars. Stars. (laughs) Maybe this is it. Maybe this is it because there's something similar here. Like those doomed teen lovers, imminent death 
hangs over Adam and Eve. But the, the catch is it's not their death. It's ours, right? It's humanity's. That's that's what they're watching. And I think the movie is ultimately about this idea that we as humans often fail to appreciate the time that we have. And because this is an art film, we also fail to appreciate the great art that we have before us during our time. I don't understand why you don't live in the same place because you can't live without each other. Anyway, give my regards to that suicidally romantic scoundrel. Do you really think he is? Scoundrel? <laughs> well, let's hope he's just romantic. Even so, I mainly blame Shelley and Byron and some of those French assholes he used to hang around with. God, I wish that I'd met him before I wrote Hammer. He would have provided the most perfect role model imaginable. So at the end of the year, it does seem fitting. We're celebrating great films that only Lovers Left Alive has this feel of the challenge. That's what it was for me when I saw it the first time, and it still kind of stands that way. It's Jarmusch's call to both make great art and appreciate it when we can. It's a really good film. It's a lovely movie. I'm really glad it made your list, Josh. All right. Because unfortunately... I'm one of those people who sort of forgot it here end of year. Didn't forget it. Did you it. consider it, though? Oh, I did. Okay. I well, did, yeah. actually. So just didn't quite Good. make the cut for the top ten. What did make the cut, though, my number seven film is a movie I just finally caught up with, and it was so good. It did crack the list here, make it all the way to number seven. It's Ira Sachs' movie, Love is Strange. Mm, yeah, good film. And this is a movie, just briefly, uh, featuring John Lithgow and Alfred Molina. They play a couple in New York City. They've been together for 39 years. They finally tie the knot, taking advantage of the, the marriage laws. And unfortunately, that does lead to some repercussions from Alfred Molina's job. He's let go, and they go through this tough time where they are short on money and have to sell their place and kind of split up and stay with various family members uh, until they can get back on their feet. Now, we invited you all here today because, well, your family. Are you telling us you're getting divorced already? That's what I thought, too. No. We, uh, we have to sell the apartment. And we found a buyer already. So pretty soon, we're going to have to move out. Now, it won't be long before I get another job. And it uh, shouldn't be long before we find another apartment, but... In the meantime... It's just a transition phase, probably just a week or two. We need a place to stay. Michael, you're our resident film historian here, so I don't know, maybe well, you no can, more than Scott or, you know... I mean, you can touch on maybe the, the connections to Leo McCary and oh, great film, Tomorrow yeah, great and, film. and Tokyo Story. Obviously, yeah. I'm familiar with Tokyo Story. I don't know how much of this film really is inspired by Make Way for Tomorrow, but Ira Sachs, I remember liking Keep the Lights On, his most recent film, but I was floored by Love is Strange, and maybe you guys can weigh in here and tell me whether or not Iris Axe made a significant jump as a filmmaker or I missed something and keep the lights on. Because it feels that way to me anyway, that this is a significantly more accomplished film than Keep the Lights On. And one of the reasons I feel that way is thinking about the subject matter and how melodramatic and frankly loud the material could have been, but how just dramatic and incisive and how insightful it is about relationships, family dynamics, about getting older and the direction. The cinematography is gorgeous. You've got some of these real painterly compositions, but they're not overly fussy. Combining music and the editing, there's some sequences that just stand on their own as stunning, separate from how they function within the rest of the film. But also I love how he uses time and imagery to tell the story, convey mood, 
and emotion. There's really so much unspoken in this movie that you're you're not at all lost or confused about because of the economy of storytelling. And it really sets it up right from the very beginning of the movie. And I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a key sequence late in the movie, a key transition point with a major character that I knew in the moment exactly what was occurring or about to occur with this character just because of how that moment and everything leading up to that moment, plus a little bit of foreshadowing earlier in the film, is presented mm. by Iris X. You know everything you need to know without a word being uttered. And when I think about just great direction of a movie, how, again, all the things I mentioned, but also just using the camera and the distance between characters to say something in that space, using all the visual and oral tools available to him, and how meticulously he tells the story, but also keeping it poetic, Sax pulled it off. It's, it's just a movie that, that blew me away, as I said. And at the end of the film, there's a shot in this movie. There's a sequence where, guys, it didn't just get a little bit dusty for me. I really was full-on stifling tears yeah, yeah, at the same. end of this movie. And I, think the last... I don't get moved that often by a movie in the way I did with Love Yeah, the last 10 minutes of that film has, and it's not an oblique movie. It's very clear and straightforward about the situation that this gay couple finds itself in and how it's and how the immediate family members they're sort of parceled out to or deal spending time with are, you know, variously ambivalent or sort of concerned or, you know, annoyed by, you know, it's, it's just how it's, it's about how people are kind of like dealing with close quarter situations mm-hmm. under, under stress. But the last 10 minutes has kind of got this open air quality. It's just got really, I mean, it really reminded me of the best of boyhood all of a sudden. I mean, I never thought about boyhood in relation to Love is Strange or vice versa, but there's, it, it really does feel like it's, a new chapter opening up, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, in a in a character that you didn't think necessarily the the movie would end with. Yeah, um, but it feels right, and it feels like the filmmaker didn't program it or diagram it. They, he sort of felt his way to that ending. It's it's a beaut, and um, yeah, it's just a wonderful showcase for especially guys like. Lithgow and Alfred Molina spend so much of their career making lots of money overacting by about 30%. And because the scripts the, the scripts call for it, the directors say fine, love it, just give me give me more of that ham, you know, and uh not happening here. Uh, not happening here because because they're smart enough actors still uh despite all the success <laughs> to just sort of calm down, figure out what what a long-term married couple or you know, a couple that is now newly married you know, how they can kind of get under each other's skin in both good and not so good ways. Yeah. And I don't know, it felt like a really lived-in pair of performances. I think maybe it opened in limited release in November. I don't know if that sounds right, but I really regret that we missed it, Josh, when it came out because for me it, was it earlier needs, still than Yeah, that. was it earlier mm-hmm. than that? It needs a solid 30-minute discussion on the show mm-hmm. at minimum. I think it's that good. And, so. and, and for people who haven't seen this movie, we just talked about Leo McCary's Make Way for Tomorrow. That's one of the most wrenching portraits of an older couple, um, Beulah Bondi and Victor Moore in the film, uh, uh, and just how they're dealing with, you know, again, economic straits, sort of the disdain and disinterest of their immediate family. Mm-hmm. That's a really tough-minded movie for 1937, yeah. and it's stunning. And those, and all three of them, uh, um, Make Way for Tomorrow, our Tokyo Story, and Love is Strange, are sort of structured in such a way to where you get this incredible powerhouse ending. So so the fact that you're we're wrecked by it, that's that's all baked in the build. All right, number six, Michael Phillips. My number six is Listen Up Philip, which uh, Scott has already dealt with, and this is Alex Ross Perry's uh, fantastically acidic 
film. And, and as you say, it's, uh, you know, Philip Roth is certainly the model, the basis, everything in this film. But it's it's a Philip Roth adaptation with the difference in that it's not based on any Roth novel or short story. It's just simply kind of Rothian in its pursuits. And both characters played by, the characters played by Jason Schwartzman and Jonathan Price are very Philip Roth and sort of their bottomless ego, uh, uh, bottomless well of narcissism. And the film takes such a smart and funny and wry stance at all the misbehavior on view. It's just, it's just kind of, I mean, I watched this film with an open mind. I was laughing half the time and just sort of like, oh, you know, the other, because it is, I mean, of all, all the films this year, the deal with artistic ego and the, the this kind of, you know, what price, success, all that stuff. So many of them, even films I like, like Birdman but Don't Love, you know, they're very soft on the protagonist in the end. They're very kind of easy on them, and their flaws are about this big. This guy is a this guy is hilariously <laughs> lost uh, up his own ass and <laughs> and it's it's just it's, it's, I I don't know and Elizabeth Moss is Why were you, you looking said, at Josh when you I, said that? I said I was no 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 not at all. This was a transition Adam. Okay. Accusing <laughs> me of being like no, no. Jason Schwartz. But you like you love it's... Elizabeth Moss in this. I think what I love about this too and you don't see very many films of any type where you where you get the central relationship between in this case Schwartzman and Elizabeth Moss where it's a living, you know, they're living together and we meet her when she's long, long past figured out what she saw in this guy in the first place. That detour and, is, it's so crucial to the film for me. Yeah, it's great. It and I love it. I love that. it that it's just, it, absolutely, the film just sort of like makes a left turn and suddenly we're with her for 20, 25, 30 minutes and it feels mm-hmm. utterly right. And uh, yeah, if you really require as a moviegoer uh, some sort of, conventional empathy or sympathy with your protagonist this really i can't think of a worse film for you for you this film will hand you a paper with staples yeah, essentially. yeah. but i i just uh, you know it's worth i this for the minute the schwartzman character goes to see his literary agent and this guy sees philip coming and he just sort of starts stealing himself for another terrible encounter with the guy and he just turns to his assistant and says uh uh, please don't don't hold my calls. <laughs> and I mean, I think I just think that's there's a million of those kind of lines in this film. It's a delight. As with any punctual individual, Philip loathed when people ran late, which Mona typically was. By the time Mona made her way to Philip, he was in a state of rage and on the verge of storming out. A reaction he was known to often have towards the end of their two-year relationship. During the arguments that led to their breakup. Mona repeatedly emphasized Philip's short fuse and poor temper as key factors in no longer being capable of tolerating his company. It's just crazy that you're late to me. Can you it's just please? Can we stop talking 25 minutes now? I'm waiting, almost 30, it's an insult. Also, I have a really busy day, so now I have less than an hour. Probably not even have time to eat anything. Maybe a grilled cheese for me. I had it the other day, it's disgusting. So I ask you how you are, right? Things are good? Yeah, it's, the one line I have about that movie is like, you know how caustic a movie is if casting uh, Eric Bogosian as the narrator is the least abrasive element in the movie. It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> but uh, are we on to my number six? We are on to your number six. Uh, my number six is Nuri Bilga Jalon's uh, new film, Winter Sleep, which opens this weekend in New York and opens in early January at the Music Box here in Chicago. And uh, this is his, you know, about 200 minute long Chekhov. <laughs> 196. Not I watched 100, it last night. 196. Don't exaggerate, Scott. It's a long, it's a long movie is what I'm saying, but 
but it's so riveting, and it's about this, you know, the sort of tragedy of a jerk. I'm going to say a jerk. But the, 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 the one line I quote, this is a justified quote, and I can't use the profanity here, but the line I come back to is like, if you meet a jerk in the morning, you've met a jerk. If you meet jerks all day, you're the jerk. Uh, so, I mean, in, in, the, in the show, it's, it's a different word. It's not for wide public consumption, but you get the point. Here's a guy who, he, he runs this mountaintop hotel in Anatolia. The people below, you know, he's their debt collector. He's their landlord. He is in control of that town. Uh, he believes himself to be a wise, thoughtful, benevolent leader. Everyone around him <laughs> believes otherwise. And, uh, and in a way, you know, it's not just about... It'd be one thing if it were about sort of the follies of a, of a misanthrope, but it's not that. It really is a tragedy. It's a tragic disconnection between this guy and the people around him. And I think it's, you know, it almost has kind of, a, you know, I'm, I'm sure it has very particular meaning in like Turkish politics that I, that I don't necessarily get. But I think it has a more of a universal theme here about people who live in the ivory tower and really lack that capability of, of understanding and empathizing with other people's perspectives. And then, of course, you know, it being a film by Jaylon, it is uh, harshly, starkly gorgeous and uh, uses, has a lot of very long scenes inside that are quite compelling and cinematic and not, you know, play-like at all. Another pick of yours, Scott, that features some of my favorite performances of the year. I mean, Haluk Bilgane in mm-hmm. the, I believe, Haluk Bilganer if that's how you pronounce it, but in the lead. I'm yeah. not going to correct you, Jeff. Since we're uh, messing these up, I mm-hmm. might as well join in. But he, um, you know, he's just, I described him as this weary, self-proclaimed monarch who's trudging around this kingdom that he created, and, and he's the only one who believes in it. And he holds you for every one of those minutes, for sure. And the other one I really liked was the sister, Demet Akbag, as the actress's name. And she doesn't get a ton of scenes, but they're such crucial insights into the psyche of the main character that that she really she turns the gears scenes. she does she gets very long scenes and they're they're, they're very great, introspective they're into what is behind the image he's trying to project that's a good way to put it i think the uh if you're at all interested in that period just before what's going to ruin that marriage any marriage it finally gets laid out on the table these people, these people, the couple at the center has been living in this sort of false <laughs> place for so long mm-hmm. where his his self-satisfaction and kind of blind you know ego is kind of one thing and 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 his wife's just growing disdain, you know and contempt for the guy. you know it's and it's not it's not heavy-handed or obvious. I, I find the film just like the Chekhov short stories it's loosely based on. It's all. Tragically funny. I don't, I don't know if it's a tragedy or if it's tragically funny, but I just find that it just feels utterly. It's one of my favorite Chekhov adaptations in existence. And maybe like Listen Up, Philip, it's not really, it wasn't really based on Philip Roth. It's not really based on Chekhov, but it captures the spirit so well that uh, it's, it's like a new benchmark for adaptation, I think. Hmm. All right, I'm up to my number six. And this film has my shot of the year in it. Talked about it in our Best of the Rest show. The director was also one of my 2014 discoveries, and the co-star, Agata Kuleitsa, gives one of my favorite supporting performances of the year. I'll allow Slate's Dana Stevens to announce the pick because she was an early champion of the film. So after much agonizing among uh, a few different movies, um, I finally settled on the movie that ravished me most upon viewing in 2014, which is Powell Pawlikowski's Ida, which I think you guys have talked about on the show. It's a black and white uh, 
very short, 80-minute long, very simple, and to me, very profound film about a young nun in the early 1960s in Poland uh, searching for the truth about her family. What made me choose Ida? Got to get into 30 seconds here. I would say it was the, the purity of the images, just the pure beauty of the film, the spareness of the script, and at the same time, the completeness of the characterizations of the young girl and her aunt. They're just such complete, wonderful characters. And then just somehow the rightness of every frame of this movie, every casting choice, every music cue. There's something about Ida that just feels so so solid and compact and complete, like it was meant to be exactly what it is. And uh, and so that's why Paul Polakowski's Ida is my choice for 2014. All right. Thanks for a year in film spotting, guys. When we did catch up with this, Adam, it was on our top five films of the year so far show. It made both of our lists at that time. For me, it was really it was a combination of things. It was both the rigorous formalism, this black and white cinematography, the composition, the use of music uh, and the religious investigation that was so gripping the way those were combined. So if you haven't seen Ida yet, it is on DVD now. I do have one more pitch. It's only 80 minutes, which do you realize that's about half an exodus? (laughs) <laughs> I'm measuring things in Exodus time now. And a now. third of winter sleep. <laughs> there you go. And it's 145th of The Hobbit 3. So <laughs> I think Exodus is actually longer. Yeah, just, it just felt the other way around. Yeah, I, I feel like The Hobbit still hasn't ended. So. <laughs> well, my number six pick is a movie that really feels right at home in a conversation with Ida. A small little film called Interstellar. Uh, <laughs> from- boy. Director Christopher Nolan. And I I did have to go to the well here and and bust out a very wise man to give me some support, especially against the hater, Uh Josh. And this wise man wrote this, and it's a semi-spoiler alert here if you haven't caught up with Interstellar yet. It is hobbled by astronomy and physics seminars disguised as dialogue. But even with its vividly realized imaginings of journeys through a wormhole or its depiction of the largest tidal wave in the history of water, what I remembered first the following morning was this. Matthew McConaughey's character crying his eyes out as he watches years and years of backlog video messages left by his son back on Earth. Simple, elemental, human feeling. More directors should try it sometime. That great writer was Michael Phillips. Yes, thank you. You remember thank those you. words? I, I just I was, you I, was, I was disappointed in your reading. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I feel like there was a gap between. That's, heard, that's not how you wrote it. You've heard and participated <laughs> in Massacre Theater. Writers so. are very particular about the rhythm of <laughs> the, the rhythm, of the and prose. I missed it. Okay, next time we'll rehearse. But I'm with you, Michael. Yes, you can talk about how great the effects are, the scale of the movie. And some of the acting performances, the human emotion is fundamentally what I remember most about Interstellar. And more than that, the humanity of the entire film. Josh, I tried to discuss this a little bit during our review, what really crystallized for me in Nolan's work in this film. In all of his films, this exploration of longing, of regret, and what speaks more to sort of this sense of, of human futility than the inability to correct a past mistake, to go back in time and undo a past trauma. You simply can't do it. The universe is uncaring, and the rules of the universe don't allow it. And his characters somehow, in all these films, they still fight anyway. They fight against that uncaring universe. And yes, of course, we've seen those emails come in, Josh, more people to your defense, people claiming how laughable some of the dialogue is. They're starting to trickle in. They're starting to trickle in. For those of you who think some of the lines are a little too corny or whatever, I say get over your smug selves, watch the movie again, go along for the ride with Matthew McConaughey and company. It's my number six. That is a good scene Michael wrote about. Good enough to put a film on a top ten list. I don't know. Scott, can I get any support from you in Interstellar being not quite the mind-blowing experience? I liked it, but it's not, it's like not it. on okay. my list. Okay. All right. Same. But I, 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 I mean, at least it made its own set of 
nutty mistakes in addition to everything it does right. You know, it, it just doesn't, at least Nolan is following his own playbook and it, it's, so not, he, it's not just like the last playbook he went but with. But sure. this is a little bit the ambition argument again we got into last time. And when you we should did get some credit is, for ambition. Uh, I, I know, but there's something wrong when you're talking so much about how the movie's ambitious. I haven't. You haven't. No. You haven't. Okay. That is part one of our top 10 films of the year countdown. We are going to get to our top five films of the year in part two of the show. And also, I think I'm going to try to make the guys stick around a little bit and share their picks for worst films of the year. We'll do that just in bonus content, though. You can get that bonus content if you have the Film Spotting app for iTunes, Android, or Windows 8 phone. You can go to filmspotting.net and click on apps to get more information. Of course, we always want your feedback. Send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on twitter at film spotting and at facebook.com slash film spotting out in limited release opening in chicago this week and a few different movies the one we're going to highlight though is a movie that made josh's 10 through 6 that is the babadook directed by jennifer kent definitely a movie recommended it sounds like by all four of us yes to see yes, it you get a chance and yeah, see it on the big screen too it with is, an yeah. audience right i mean big. a horror film with an audience yeah. who's into it that's yeah. that's a great opportunity best horror film I, i've seen since the conjuring easily wow playing at the Music Box here in Chicago. Out in wide release, Annie, Josh, Guvanjane Wallace, you'll be right there in line, right? Yeah, she looks to be doing something a little bit different than Beast, than in Beast of the Maybe Southern so. Wild from, from the commercials that I saw. Well, as I already lamented on a previous show, I will be there with my children at Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. I'm not going to be able to avoid that one. That's also opening. This See, I was going to ask you if this was a gun to your head situation Pretty here, much. Annie, or Night at the Museum 3, whatever it is. Trying you're to going be, to Night at the Museum. Trying to be a good father, going to put the phone down for 90 <laughs> minutes or so. We'll see how that works out. I know you're going to be peaking. Next week, it will be, as we said, part two of the top 10 films of 2014. Michael and Scott are going to be here all week, I think, just basically chained to the desk. Josh, your wife brought some goodies. They'll be fine. We feed them. They'll be fine. So, guys, and we'll, thank you. Can you clothe us? That's the, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. You but are thank such you. a diva, Michael Phillips. <laughs> As always, your insights were greatly appreciated. Is there anything out there our listeners can look forward to reading from you this week? Anything you want to promote? You know, my own top 10 with uh, 10 or 20 more behind it at chicagotribune.com slash movies. Yeah, and this week was all about uh, year-end stuff. We have best films uh, that made under $100,000 at the box office, and we have acting, actress, uh, we have the big year in film piece. And then as a little bonus thing, I, I wrote a very long, like 3,000-word, one-year-later piece about uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, nice. So to really kind of do a deep dive into I'm that. I'm going to make Josh read that, <laughs> like, to say. like Alex in A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> I'm getting my homework. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank Film you. Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week, some of the year's best film scores. They were chosen by friend of the show, Sam Smith. Thanks, Sam, for putting that together. We always appreciate it. You can learn more about Sam at samsmyth.blogspot.com. That's S-A-M-S-M-Y-T-H. We'll also post the full list of Sam's score picks over at filmspotting.net when part two goes up next week. Until then... For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.